Good morning or good afternoon or good night to anybody who's listening. And you know that I cherish my audience that verdict is in. And if you're feeling down about yourself or the world, just know that I care about you. And this show is intended to make you very intelligent and to increase your knowledge about the world around you. I promise to bring you informative guests who would teach you things. And this is not a political program. It is simply a way for you to learn. And knowledge is power. Whether you're in the inner city and you're low income or you're an elderly or you're just an average person, you're a person on this planet and it's important for you to learn what's happening on your planet and the way you can make your own life better. And this is my attempt to give you a hand up. I have another great guest. I promise you that I would. I have one of the world's leading marine biologist types, uh, Nan Cohn. She is a tenured professor and she spends a lot of time in the water doing amazing things, studying coral reefs and looking at shellfish and the world that is out in that ocean. Often we look out at the ocean and we see things differently than she does. And we're going to learn how she sees things and and what we can learn about the ocean that we look out on when we're on vacation uh, and we don't quite know what's going on underneath it. She is an associate scientist with tenure at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. There, they do a lot of very important research, which Anne is very interested in, the calcification in the ocean, which impacts climate change on marine calcification of coral reefs and shellfish, ocean acidification records of climate change, coral skeletons, geochemistry of calcium, carbonate shells and skeletons, development of new proxies for ocean climate. That's a lot of very big words. She is a woman who loves the water and loves the planet. We look into outer space and we see, you know, we're in search of existence there. There's another planet within our planet. It's called the ocean. And welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I want to splash some water on my guests and I want them to become very tuned in to what's happening out in that sparkly blue ocean underneath the water. I'm going to ask you first a basic question. What got you interested in getting into the water and studying coral reefs and shellfish? When did that interest grow up inside you? I grew up on the wild coast of South Africa, and from a very young age, I used to spend a lot of time at the beach with my mom and my grandparents and my four brothers and sisters. We used to play in the rock pools in the intertidal zone with all the sea creatures, the little fish and the sea anemones and the sea urchins, and I was just fascinated always. And when I grew up, I wanted to become a marine biologist, which I did, and then when I came to the U.S., I got a position at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution to study coral reefs. And so I have been doing that for about 25 years now. Yes. And for my audience, what is a marine biologist? How would you describe a marine biologist? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because there are so many different kinds of marine scientists, um, people who study the ocean. There's oceanographers, biologists, chemists, physicists all study the ocean and different parts and and characteristics of the ocean. Marine biologists in particular are interested in the life in the ocean. So people who study whales could be marine biologists or people who study bacteria in the ocean could call themselves marine biologists. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are very well aware of the term climate change, and uh, they think about carbon emissions on the ground, cars and factories and gas stations and the like, and they think about thinning out through industrialization of the forest and uh, industrial farming and how some of these things, plastics, 
are all a problem, but very few people think about our dependence on the ocean. So I'll ask you the big question for my audience, why should we care about coral reefs? How does that tie into man's existence on this planet? Oh, wow. It's huge. So coral reefs are amazing structures, geological structures that are built by tiny, tiny little animals called coral polyps. Each coral polyp is about one millimeter in diameter. And they are building these huge structures like the Great Barrier Reef that you can see from space. But if you put all the coral reefs together, they actually only take up about 1% or less than 1% of the surface area of the ocean. So they don't take up a lot of space in terms of their footprint, but they actually support the livelihoods of 1 billion people around the world. That's one-seventh of the global human population depends on coral reefs for their lives. Why is there this dependence upon people who walk on two feet on the earth and the coral reefs that are down in the uh, ocean? Well, a lot of people actually live on coral reefs. So Hawaii is a coral reef. Guam, which is also a U.S. territory, is a coral reef. Florida is a, is a coral reef. The Virgin Islands are coral reefs. Bermuda is a coral reef. It's built from corals. Oh, my gosh. Let me stop you right there. You mean if I go to Kauai or Oahu or one of those Hawaiian islands, it is built on top of or supported by coral reef? Well, Hawaii is an interesting one because Hawaii is actually volcanic. So the islands themselves are volcanoes, but the coral reefs grow around the base of the volcano. So a significant proportion of Hawaii tourism, a significant proportion of Hawaii fishing industry is all dependent on those coral reefs in Hawaii. Is it because the coral reefs uh, themselves provide food, nutrition for fish and bring fish to a certain place where local fishermen would go and they also are a barrier to you know, storms and the like? Yeah, so why are they so important? So let's go back to Bermuda, for example. So Bermuda used to be like Hawaii with a volcano sticking up out of the ocean. That volcano has subsequently sunk in a process called subsidence. And the coral reefs that grew around the base of the volcano continued to grow upward to the surface of the ocean. And those corals kept making skeleton. And eventually they filled in the lagoon and made land. And Bermuda is actually made of primarily of sand dunes that are originally made from coral skeletons. And a lot of coral reef islands are actually built like that. So people are living on, eating, having families, banks. Shopping centers, grocery stores are actually built on the material that the corals are making. So that's one way that coral reefs are contributing to humanity. The other is that 25% of all the marine species in the ocean are found on coral reefs. And many of those are actually the larvae of commercially important fisheries. So the larvae will have a nursery in the coral reef. And when they grow up into adult fish, they'll leave the reef and become important coral reef fisheries. I think there's about 8,000 species of fish on coral reefs alone. And they are feeding millions and millions of people around the world. Now, I've also heard the existence of the coral reef ties into uh, the absorption of carbon emissions in some way, and that it essentially brings carbon emissions that come into the ocean down into the reef for the fish, or somehow that if the coral die, our ability to absorb carbon emissions through the ocean will disappear. At least I've heard that argument made. So in a way, that's correct, because what a coral reef is, is basically calcium carbonate that's accumulated over a very long, long period of time. So it's not 
truly rock in, in the way you think of rock, like mountain. It's a soft rock, calcium carbonate. These organisms, the corals are making. And over thousands of years, the skeletons of the corals accumulate together to form what we call the coral reef. So that's basically what a coral reef is. And then all the life that you see when you go snorkeling or scuba diving, that's just sitting on the top of a huge mountain of calcium carbonate that's sort of stuck together over time that originally was coral. Now, calcium carbonate has carbon in it, right? So when the coral is producing that calcium carbonate skeleton, it's fixing carbon from the water that originally came from the atmosphere. So in one way, as coral reefs are growing, there are accumulations of carbon. I see. And that's important to the ecosystem in the world, correct? That is important. I think that the amount of carbon that is sequestered in a coral reef might not be as important in terms of global CO2 emissions or, global, or greenhouse gas emissions as, for example, the phytoplankton in the surface ocean that are photosynthesizing and capturing carbon and then sinking down into the deep ocean where that carbon is sequestered. You see, the trick is that corals are both sources and sinks of CO2. So carbon dioxide is being released from the reef, but it's also being sequestered. And I think on balance, it's probably about equivalent. And then why are scientists, what are they doing to help the coral reefs? And what is the threat to coral reefs? Because I've heard a lot of concern about the health of our coral reefs. If it supports one-seventh of humanity, if it helps with the carbon emissions in some way with phytoplankton or other type sea life, it seems to play a critical role in the overall ecosystem of mankind. And I hear the coral reefs are dying. Can you explain that to us and why? Yes. You think about these ecosystems that are taking up less than 1% of the surface area of the ocean. That's a really tiny footprint. And yet they're supporting one seventh of the global human population. That's a disproportionate service relative to their size, right? They're these tiny little things that are contributing hugely to humans, not only by feeding them, feeding people and providing income from tourism, land to live on. They're also protecting the land. So, for example, Hawaii, any, any place that you go for vacation on a coral reef island, and if, you, if you're familiar with Bermuda or the Virgin Islands, the reason that you can play on that beach or suntan on the beach or have a glass of wine at sunset is because the coral reef is preventing the force of the waves from hitting the beach and eroding that beach away. Yeah, very interesting concept because my wife and I are fascinated with an island off the coast of South Carolina called Kiowa. And they're very proud that their island is kind of slowly eroding, is actually growing. And they take their great pride in how they're taking care of their coral reef. So, and I know in New Orleans, when the big hurricanes came in, they lamented the fact that their reefs were not as effective or had died off. But maybe explain a little bit more about how the coral reef will either cause land to erode or to grow. As I mentioned earlier, the coral reef is really an accumulation of calcium carbonate. We call it a soft rock. And it grows towards the surface. The coral reef grows towards the surface of the ocean. So most coral reefs are just a few millimeters, maybe a meter at low tide from the ocean surface. And when the waves roll in, they crash on the coral reef. And the, that coral reef, the structure of it, is absorbing 97% of the energy of the waves. If the coral reef wasn't there, 
the waves would just crash on the shore. And the shoreline, the beach, would have to absorb that energy. Um, and there'd be huge damage. And it would erode. And it would erode. And what, but with the coral reef, what you have is sort of a natural barrier that naturally absorbs all that energy. And so behind the reef, you often find uh, harbors. People make harbors behind the reef because it's so calm. We can build hotels on the shoreline because it's so calm. We can play on the beach. Yeah, coral reefs do a lot for us in that way. And even in many places in Indonesia and in the Pacific, coral reefs are a barrier to tsunamis. And in some of the big tsunamis that have happened recently, killing hundreds of thousands of people, what scientists have determined is that a lot of the damage was caused because the reefs were not in good condition and were not able to absorb the force of the tsunami. Uh, so this is, again, you see mankind's existence on this planet and our ability to live here continuously is tied to these reefs. So what is happening under the water? I see pictures of coral reefs. They look very different from when I went snorkeling maybe 15, 20 years ago, where instead of them being multicolored and interesting in this whole sea life, I see this graveyard of white coral, which I guess in some respects is pretty. It's white, but that's a problem. So what is causing the problem and why is it so significant? So, Jerry, there's really two problems. One is just local human activity, over-exploitation of reefs. So every time we build a hotel on a reef or we build a road close to a reef or go fishing, or sometimes even tourism can do this, there's a little bit of destruction that goes on with the corals, and that accumulates over time. And the bigger the scale of the, the activity, the bigger the impact. And for a long time, what we call the local activity or the local threats were really the biggest problem for coral reefs that was causing the biggest damage for coral reefs across the world. And so in response, many coral reef countries, including the U.S., started instituting some important, very important laws and management strategies to ensure the sustainability of healthy coral reef systems. And we've done a really good job across the world of making people more aware, making hotel chains more aware, making tourists aware of managing overfishing, of managing pollution uh, on coral reefs. So humanity really stepped up in that way. You know, we kind of made a mess without realizing it. And then once we realized it and scientists were saying, hey, we can see the link between these activities and this destruction of the reef, people really stepped up to the plate and started to devise strategies to fix it. And all across the world, that's what's happening. That's encouraging. That is encouraging. And that's why I haven't closed up and gone home, because that's why I'm still doing my job, because I'm still super optimistic. I really think that humans are the most incredible creatures, and we can fix this if we put our minds to it. So I'm all in. So there's another problem, though, beyond the local use of and pollution of or, or disregard negligence towards the reef. The global warming now is tying into what's happening. Yes, that's becoming a really big problem. So corals are really amazing creatures. And, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm completely in love with these tiny little creatures that are only one millimeter in diameter. They're like the size of a pinhead. But if I tell you some things about corals, I think you might fall in love with them as well. Okay, there we go. I'm ready. I'm ready. So coral reefs actually exist in some of the most nutrient poor areas of the ocean in the world. There's just no food there. And yet these coral reefs thrive. And they're so productive and they have these thousands and thousands of fish and all these other creatures on them. How do they do that? How do they 
uh, maintain this high level of productivity in a nutrient-poor ocean. Because, you know, even fishermen know, where do you find fish? You find fish where there's plankton, where there's nutrients, where there's food, right? You follow the food, you find the fish. But coral reefs are actually able to exist and thrive and make productive ecosystems in very nutrient-poor waters of the ocean. And the reason why is because each little coral, each little coral polyp actually houses inside its cells little algae, little plants. So these are single-cell dinoflagellates that live inside the cells of the coral. Millions of little algal cells live inside one polyp, which is the size of a pinhead. And what do they do? They photosynthesize. So they behave exactly like trees and plants on, on land. They photosynthesize. They capture carbon. They make food. And they give it to the coral. And the coral is the boss. So now this story is very important and very critically linked to the question you originally asked me about global warming, which I'm going to get to in a minute. So the coral is the boss. It's got all millions of these little algal cells living inside it that are making food. And when it puts its thumb down, the algal cells turn over the food to the coral. And that's where the coral gets most of its food. So they, they are little food factories. Yes. They actually don't need to go to the grocery store. They don't need to go to a restaurant to get dinner. Dinner's happening inside them. They are actually making it. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. So when you go scuba diving or you go snorkeling on a coral reef, just think about that. When you look at a coral, what's actually happening in there, millions of little algal cells are under the gun, churning out food to feed the boss. Yes, I got it. Understanding. It wouldn't be great if humans had ability to photosynthesize themselves with their cells. Yeah, imagine if like we could go walking across the desert mm -hmm. just for days and days and days, looking at all the beautiful and not worry about where's the food going to come from, where's the water going to come from. We're just totally self-sustaining. Wouldn't that be amazing? So these beautiful, amazing creatures of life that are fed by algae, essentially, algae cells uh, that photosynthesize, how is that system that you just described being impacted by global warming? So... The cool thing, you know, corals come in all pretty colors as well, lots of pretty colors. Those, that color comes from those algae. If you take the algae out of the coral, all you see is white because the coral itself is transparent and the skeleton is white. So basically you're looking through the transparent coral at the white skeleton. So when you mentioned earlier, when you went snorkeling, you saw all these white corals that look really pretty like Christmas trees. That's because those corals have lost their algae. And that's what happens when it gets the water gets too warm. So with global warming, what we're seeing is the ocean temperature is rising and corals today that have evolved over the past 10,000 years haven't seen this kind of heat before. They don't know how to deal with it. And when it gets too hot, the environment inside the coral cells becomes too toxic and the coral spits out the algae. So the coral kind of has to make a decision. Okay, it's getting really hot in here. The environment is becoming toxic. These algaes are making things worse under these conditions. I'm going to have to kick them out or I'm going to die. So mostly what happens is the coral kicks the algae out. They spit them out of their mouths. You can actually see the algae being spat out. And then the coral is white. It's not dead yet, but all you see is white skeleton. And that's what you saw when you went snorkeling. Do people record the temperature of the ocean in different places and keep track of it so that one can say with some certainty that the ocean temperature is rising? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've been recording ocean temperature since the 1850s. And over what period of time have we seen this spike, if we were to look at a period of time where the water's gotten much warmer? Starting in about 1975. 
boom, started getting really hot. We actually have satellites up in the sky circling the Earth. Every millimeter of the Earth's surface is being um, measured by those satellites, and they are telling us what the water temperature is all the time. So since 1982, we actually have hourly temperatures every tiny little pixel of Earth's surface, we have those data. But people started recording temperatures all over the world from ships um, throwing buckets over the side and putting a thermometer in the bucket since the 1850s. So we have a pretty good record about what's been happening. And it's, yeah, it's definitely warming. How, how long have the coral, have, how long have they been on this planet? Have they, do they go back to, you know, prehistoric ages like the dinosaurs? Or how long have they been on this planet? Oh, yeah. So in various forms, coral reefs have been around for about 500 million years. So really long time. The coral reefs that first started didn't look like the coral reefs today, and they weren't even composed of the same material as they are today. And over that time period of their existence, coral reefs have become extinct six times. They've disappeared from the fossil record six times. Oh, really? Huh? Because of different climate changes? Yes. It always has to do with either combination of overheating and acidification or just overheating. Or becoming too cold? No, no. In fact, even there were coral reefs uh, growing in the oceans even during the last glacial, like when the mammoths were walking around. Um, that the coral reefs still flourishing in the oceans. So I didn't finish my story about the little algae. I just wanted to tell you what happens. So when it gets too hot, the coral spits out the little algae, and because the algae feed them, the coral is now starving. So when you see a white coral. It's a starving coral. We can actually measure their weight loss because they lose a lot of fat. They become really, really thin. So during one bleaching event, we call it bleaching because the corals become white. The corals lost 75% of their fat. They were emaciated. So then, you know, what happens is even if they survive, they can't have babies or it's just really tragic. Well, when I listen to you, I get very depressed. So I know that you're a positive person. You'll help me out. But if I understand that the coral reefs uh, feed and support tourism and support island life in many ways, including structurally, food, and entertainment, and that they also serve this huge function of the algae absorbing carbon and also making sure that our beaches that we love so much as human beings and we flock to don't totally erode. All of those things seem very important. And that what's happening is because of global warming, the ocean's getting warmer, and now we're basically starving our coral. What can we as human beings do to try to reverse the problem just the way that we reverse the issue of our neglect of the coral reefs that we fixed? What can we do here to fix this problem? Yeah, that's a good question, Jerry. It's probably the most important question. What can we do? Ultimately, we've got to manage greenhouse gas emissions. We have to manage climate change. Coral reefs have seen climate change before, and when it's rapid like it is now, they go extinct. So we know that that's happened. So we can see the path ahead, right? We can see that this is what's happening. We've already lost 25% of coral reef surface area just from global warming in the last 40 years. Crazy. 25% gone. Yes. So ultimately, we have to manage climate change, and I'm for that. We can all play our part, can support the government's attempts, efforts in this direction, and we can do things in our own homes and with our own vehicles and our own flying, and we can do personal things to to contribute to that because ultimately that's really what's at stake here. 
Yeah, I know that the ocean is very much affected by the use of plastics and the dumping of plastics into the ocean, which pollutes it, puts toxins into the water, which affects the fish. The fish have some of those chemicals from the plastics in them, which of course makes them less safe to eat. I also have heard that industrial fishing, just like industrial farming, has given rise to many, many problems in the ocean. Is that true? Yes. Yes, we're overfishing. I mean, there's just a lot of scientists, many, many scientists just don't eat fish anymore because we are overfishing the oceans, depleting it. There's nothing, there's almost nothing left there anymore. Well, yeah, I'm a vegan, so I don't eat fish. I don't eat anything that's living. I try to leave nature alone and eat plants. Now, speaking of plants, are corals animals or plants or rocks? What would you call them? So I would say that they're all three of those things. They're pretty amazing. Yeah. So the coral polyp, the animal, has these algae inside it, right? And they live together. They're born together. When the mother coral gets pregnant with her babies, she actually gives them some of her algal cell. And then when she opens her mouth at the full moon and releases her babies into the ocean, they go off with their own complement of little algal cells <laughs> so that when they settle and start to build their own reefs, they have something from their mother, a little gift from their mother. But then they also make skeleton. They make soft rock calcium carbonate skeleton. So the whole thing, what we call the holobiont, is really an animal plant rock combination. Wow, that's really interesting. Now, two quick last questions because I've taken a lot of your time and hopefully people are waking up to the reality that climate change is affecting coral reefs and how we treat our oceans affecting coral reefs and how important they are to our sustainability as a race. But there's some reefs, coral reefs, that have been used to very hot water because of El Nino or certain things, and you can find it in the South Pacific. Is that true? And what do you call those reefs? Yeah, I was hoping you would raise those because this is what's so amazing is there's natural variability in the ocean, in ocean life. Just as there is variability in human sensitivity, for example, to diseases, there's variability in coral sensitivity to heat. And what we're finding, which makes me like super optimistic, is that there are some corals that can deal with the heat. They are what we call resistant. It's almost like they've been immunized. You know, they had the COVID vaccination. <laughs> well, they, they, there's an adaptation. You know, it's a very amazing thing about how ignorant human beings are in many ways, although they're super intelligent in other ways. I mean, as humans adapted, people had different pigmentation in their skin because they were in the sun more. I mean, that's just an evolutionary fact. I mean, you didn't have Nordics that had brown skin. You had people with brown skin in Africa and South America. Why? Because the pigmentation changed. That's all that happened. They're same human beings, same blood, same skeleton, same structure. They just were going to be in the sun a lot more. And so then people who were from the Nordic area started to see people from an area where the pigmentation changed, human beings in their most primitive form were like, that's different. We're afraid of it. Now, to think that we're still dealing with that is, is just, I'm, I, I'm not going to get into it. But the truth is that the coral reefs adapt like human beings do, correct? Over time, through generations, if they're in this super hot water. There are some coral reefs that for different reasons, so there's different mechanisms underlying their ability to resist heat, are able to deal with the heat that we're throwing at them right now. There's not a lot. So what scientists are doing is really undertaking an urgent race to find where these corals and coral reefs are. And then we need to protect them. 
right? So we don't want them to be dynamited or overfished or kicked up by snorkelers, flippers. Like we want to protect them. And then what people are also doing is farming them. So you can actually farm corals pretty easily because they're like plants. You can just take a clipping and that clipping will grow into a new coral. So what we're doing is we're finding these heat-resistant corals in certain places around the world, wherever we can find them. And then we're starting to grow them and putting them out on the reefs to help the coral reefs survive. Now that's encouraging. That's encouraging. Yeah, that's human ingenuity, right? Yes. So we can actually figure this out. We can look at another species and figure out how it's working and say, hey, we can take your natural immunity and farm it. Yes. And then I also understand that some younger coral can migrate, or maybe I'm wrong in the terminology, but do some of them migrate towards less warm water? Do they move if they're young enough in their um, life cycle? Yeah. So corals have a life cycle. And I was telling you this, mentioned this a little bit earlier in our conversation. A lot of corals actually get pregnant. They male and female and the females get pregnant. They grow the baby corals in their stomachs. And then at the new moon, or the full moon, sorry, not the new moon, it's got to be a full moon, all the mother corals open their mouths and the babies come out. And they get taken on the ocean currents, sometimes far away from the parent. And they can relocate in other places on that same island or on the next door island, and they can then start growing into new corals. The baby coral looks like a little worm. It doesn't look like a coral polyp. You know, a coral polyp looks like a sea anemone. looks very much like a sea anemone, and it's they're very closely related to sea anemones. But the babies just look like little worms, and they're tiny, uh, and they're just blobs of fat, really. They're about 75% fat, and they get a lot of the fat from their moms. So after the mothers release the babies, they get really, really thin. But yeah, so the ocean currents take those baby corals, we call them planular larvae, and transports them to other places. And sometimes those larvae can get transported further north to where it's a little bit cooler. And so what we're seeing is some species, we're actually finding some species of corals starting to grow in places that we've never seen them before because they're tracking the cooler currents further north. But even that has limitations, though, Jerry. I see. It has limitations. Why is that? Because corals photosynthesize, they need light. So we find even Bermuda, which is 32 degrees north, it doesn't have uh, the same amount of sunlight full year round. Uh, the day isn't the same length all year round. And we see the corals there grow quite slowly in Bermuda, even though Bermuda's got the most exquisite coral reefs, really beautiful. I would recommend if you haven't been there to visit. But they can't get... You, we won't get corals much further north than that, just because of the light limitation. Are people building what are called loosely artificial reefs? Yes. And what is the purpose of that and how are they built? So I mentioned before that corals are actually quite easy to farm. So it's quite easy to grow a lot of corals from one coral because you can just break a piece off and then that new piece will grow into its own colony. And so what people have started to do, these are, these are scientists in collaboration with conservation organizations and also stakeholders in coral reef countries. So local people, fishermen who recognize that they really need the corals to be alive in order for there to be fish. They've started what we call these coral farms to support coral restoration efforts. So coral restoration is you take a piece of coral reef that has been devastated by climate change or by overfishing and you repopulate it with farm corals. And these efforts have been quite successful. So this is definitely something that we want to pay attention to. We haven't figured out how to scale them up 
we can't grow up Great Barrier Reef. I mean, we can't even grow Bermuda or, you know, these restored reefs are quite small still. So they're mostly sort of like a hotel, you know, a hotel chain wants to have a coral reef in their front yard for snorkelers, for visitors. So you can grow a coral reef sort of that big, but not huge. Anyway, so all of these efforts, you know, to, to save the coral reefs that are naturally tolerant of climate change and then to try to restore coral reefs by planting corals, all of these efforts are really, really important to keep corals going, coral reefs going, keep them alive until we can start to really manage climate change. Well, I'm going to end by jumping off the platform you provided. This is a show that focuses on nature. And I want to share with my audience a view that maybe you can take home with you. This planet is a beautiful, amazing, rare, and unique planet in the solar system as known by mankind. There's beautiful oceans, beautiful forests, and it was put together, whether you say it by God or by some force of nature, in a way where every little insect and every little creature has a role in this huge performance that sustains life on this planet. And when I was younger, I read lots and lots of books on Indian culture. While they had their problems and that there were issues they were trying to overcome, the one thing that they were very wed to was respecting nature, living in harmony with nature. In other words, an old saying I was told is the difference between big pigs and little pigs is that big pigs get slaughtered. What does that mean? Mankind has become greedy. We have. We've just decided if we can do it, we're going to do it. We're going to dump all kinds of carbon because our factories and our cars and our life, that's the way we like it, and all the conveniences and all the plastic and all the roads that we build and the cement cities that we build and all the dumping in the ocean because that's just easier. All of that, partying in our boats and throwing crud into the ocean and throwing a, a match, of a cigarette into the forest and burning it. I mean, this behavior is selfish. It's unkind to future generations. It's greedy. It's every kind of characteristic you don't want to have as a species that's given the gift of life on a gorgeous, perfectly coordinated, built for our existence planet. And you want to understand that if you go out on a boat and you have a cigarette and you are using all kinds of fuel and you're throwing dumping plastics in the ocean, oh, you know, you're just having a good time. You're drinking. You're having a good time. You have to understand that you're polluting this world, not just on that particular moment, but multiply that by millions of people in big countries that don't care. And now suddenly you have a planet that is polluted and struggling to live and to breathe and to have enough sustainability. And so in some way, you have to go back, you have to find a way and your, you know, people who are doing uh, farming in the inner cities, you know, I cheer them out because it's uh, uh, urban farming. And the idea of looking to live in places like Kiowa, and I'm going to clap out for Kiowa, they don't let you clear everything out. You had to build your house in the jungle, and then you live in the jungle. And by the way, you're not allowed to have all those big lights people like to put around their house because it frightens the deer. And they don't allow on that island any gas stations or anything commercial. You live uh, with a few golf courses and a few tennis courts and a small hotel and spa. And it's dark, but you can see the stars at night. And by the way, you see tons and tons and tons of plants and trees. And you see deers and bobcats and turtles that migrate into the land to have their babies. And when you're in nature, you as a human being, whether you're under the ocean looking at the coral reef in its beautiful state, not its polluted state, or you're walking through nature or living in nature in harmony, you will be happier. You will sleep better. You will have less stress. 
So that is my gift to you, in addition to this amazing woman who looks at the world. And when you're sitting on your beach, when you get to that beach, and only a few of us get to get to the beach, because a lot of us live in between, and we have to migrate, travel, and get to the ocean. But if you're lucky enough to look at that ocean and you see that glimmering sunlight off of it, remember that underneath there is a whole community of other animals and plants that were created for the existence of this entire network. We're only a part of it. We're not supposed to dominate it or destroy it. We're supposed to live in harmony with it. Those are my two cents. Very wonderfully said. Thank you. Anne, I can't thank you enough. And uh, we've been graced with more information, people. Take this information. Don't argue left or right. Come educated. Do something about it. And everyone have a great day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.